my own, and that is that we are seeking to put together an Easter choir and uh, looking for 40 voices. I've been recruiting, and successfully, I might add, among uh, a number of the men. So we have a solid men's section lined up, um, but we need fill-in voices around that. So uh, if you can sing better than Pastor Vince, <laughs> then, uh, then we'd like you to be part of that. Okay, that's just about everybody here. We need some uh, women's uh, voices as well, so uh, you can find that in your e-bulletin uh, as well, but it'll be just a glorious time to, to form an Easter, a 40-voice Easter choir and, and to sing the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are. We're uh, back to our series. We're actually in the fourth installment of an eight-part series on work, and that's where we find ourselves again this morning. Last week, we looked at uh, work as spoiled in the fall. That is, when Adam, in rebellion and defiance of his creator, took an aid of the fruit that had been forbidden for him, that he plunged both himself and his race, and that's usins, as descendants of Adam, he plunged us into sin, and as a result of that fall, God cursed the earth. God cursed the earth. And the process of uh, the result of cursing the earth means that God rendered the earth difficult to work. It wasn't work that God cursed. It was the earth in which we have to do our work. And in that curse, God didn't completely remove the fruitfulness, but he made it far more difficult to extract that fruitfulness from the earth and and by extension to all of the various occupations in which we find ourselves engaged. God has rendered it all difficult. Thorns and thistles is how it's described there in Genesis 3. And we spent a lot of time talking about that and, and sort of those external factors that make work difficult, frustrating. That it's very hard to, to, to find that sense of joy that ought to be there. That God actually placed latent within work and within us as created in the image of God. So we looked at those external factors. Well, this morning I want to I turn the corner a little bit. I want to continue to look at work as it presently exists in a, in a broken world and difficult as it is. But I want to I address another aspect of work as damaged by sin. This time, it's actually not the work itself that is damaged, but instead, it's the worker. The work is damaged, and the worker is damaged, and that's you and I. What I want to address this morning is the topic of laziness. The topic of laziness. So ready? All together, groan. Ugh. Okay? I want to address the topic of laziness. This is one of those hard ones because this is going to make me an equal opportunity offender. But this is, uh, this is needful for us to hear. This is needful. Beloved, laziness is an absolutely massive problem in this country. It is a massive problem. For much of the history of the United States of America, we have been 
the most productive nation, really, in the history of the world. The most productive nation in the history of the world. Now, there are many reasons for that. Certainly, we have been endowed by God providentially with immense natural resources that most countries just don't have access to. That's a true statement. But the incredible productivity that has characterized this nation, certainly in its early centuries, lay not as much in the natural resources that were abundant, but in the ethic of the workers who pursued those resources. We worked as a, as a people with what is commonly called a Protestant work ethic. A Protestant work ethic. What is that? Well, simply put, you can boil it down to this. Work hard, work honestly. The Protestant work ethic. Work hard and work honestly. This Protestant work ethic grows really out of a Calvinistic understanding that work is is part of a divine calling upon us. And that as we work, it it is an evidence of the grace of God in our lives. We don't work to receive the grace of God. We work as a result of the grace of God in our lives. We have been saved unto good works, as we are told in Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, the, those, many of those who founded this country, certainly the early Puritans, they understood this theological reality and they stressed it. They stressed it, the importance of work. But all of their hard work brought about an abundant material prosperity. We grew wealthy as a nation. We grew wit- rich as a people. And with it, it it brought a number of really unintended and uninvited consequences. And these consequences were were noted and lamented by the early Puritans even as early as the early 18th century. In fact, there's a, a quote I have for you here by a Boston pastor by the name of Cotton Mather in 1702. That's the beginning of the 18th century, 1702. And and he laments this. He says, religion gave birth to prosperity and the daughter destroyed the mother. Religion, he's talking about the Christian religion. Religion gave birth to prosperity and the daughter destroyed the mother. Even in his day, he could see that the abundant prosperity that was being poured forth was having its negative consequences. It was damaging the fabric of the society. In the 20th century, that 100-year period of time from 1900 to, to 1999, the average American non-farm work week shrunk from 53 hours to 42. 53 to 42. That means in that 100-year period of time, the average worker spent 11 less hours every week on the job. Now, there are many reasons for that. Certainly, time-saving things had part of it, and and the organized labor movement and the 40-hour work week and on and on were all part of that process, to be sure. But as the work week shrunk, uh, shrunk, At the same time, the the amount of wasted hours at work grew. 
So it was a twofold effect. People were working not as long and they were not as productive in their work. In fact, on average, the number of hours wasted, they tell us, these who study such things, that in that 100 year period of the 20th century, the number of hours wasted in a week rose to close to 20% of the workday. That means essentially one day in five were wasted. You might be at work five days a week, but you're not working five days a week. And you know, it has only gotten worse. It is not improving. It is growing worse. I have some uh, some infographics. I found these here on the internet. And so rather than me just read some statistics, it's nice to have pictures that go with them. And I'll show you a few of them. Now... Wasting three hours out of an eight-hour workday. And by the way, I think that one of the reasons this is accelerating is because of the Internet. Because of the Internet. It, it presents boundless temptations to waste time. You know, when I, when I began working, i just give you an aside, and I realize that I'm not quite as old as Noah, but, you know, not that far removed. When I began working, and I began working in banking back in 1979, that people did not have telephones on their desk unless there was a compelling business need to have one. Did you know that? And the average worker, if they wanted to make a phone call, they would go to a pay phone on their coffee break and make a phone call. They were not allowed to talk on the telephone during work hours. And yet now we carry, most of us, our telephone in our pocket. And increasingly, we carry an internet-connected telephone in our pocket. Now, I'm not here to bash on the internet. I love the internet. I think it's got some tremendous opportunities, but with it come some tremendous temptations. This is a really frightening statistic. Three hours out of every eight workday. That, by the way, as it says here, doesn't include lunch and scheduled breaks. Okay, those are on top of that. What are the distractions? Next slide, please. Web surfing, 44%. Web surfing, 23%. Socializing with coworkers, that has nothing to do with the internet, I realize. Almost 4%, just plain spacing out. A <laughs> little over 1%, looking for another job. Time wasted, you see that slide on the right there, time wasted in an eight-hour workday. The, uh, the average human resource manager, they, uh, they, they assume in their, in their budgetary calculations that uh, just about one hour a day is wasted, but they suspect, actually, that over an hour and a half is wasted, and the worker says, no, I waste about three. Three hours out of eight. Next slide. Here's an interesting one. Older workers waste less time than younger workers. Maybe that's because they realize their time is shorter and they, they don't want to waste it. But I don't think so. I think there is some generational things happening here. Those born between 1930 and 1949 waste on average a half an hour and an eight-hour day. Those born between 1980 and 1985 waste almost two. 
The younger you are, the more time you waste. I do think it is a, a function, partially a function of maturity. As one becomes more mature, one becomes more serious about life, that's for sure. What else we got here? The corner there. Let's see, they're figuring, uh, statisticians figuring out, what do they say? $759 billion of total salary dollars wasted every year. It's bigger than the annual Defense Department budget, just to put it in perspective. 64% of workers admit to using the Internet for personal uh, gain, personal purposes during work hours. Major retailers report that the vast majority of their sales occur during normal working hours. 60% of online purchases. 65% of YouTube views during normal working hours. 77% of workers say they use their Facebook account during working hours. And on and on. On and on. It's a problem. It's, it's more than a problem. It's a, it's a crisis. It is a crisis because we will surely reap what we sow as a culture. And the interesting thing is for, you know, they continue to survey Americans and we have, a, we have a really good opinion of ourselves. We think we're exceedingly smart and hardworking and productive and yet we are falling behind other parts of the industrial world. But it doesn't need to be that way for all of us. And I hope that this morning's message, the Spirit of God will use in my heart and in yours to bring conviction where it is necessary, to bring encouragement, to admonish us, and through the gospel to empower us to live differently. To live differently. So I want you to open up to the book of Proverbs. That's where we're going this morning. The title of the message is A Biblical Theology of Work. Work in the wisdom of Proverbs. Work in the wisdom of Proverbs. So go to Proverbs. Just locate yourself there at the beginning of the book. We're going to necessarily need to move rather quickly through here. We're not going to exhaust this by any stretch of the imagination. But as we look at Proverbs together, I want to ask and answer three questions. Three questions so that we might identify and fight against really the debilitating sin of laziness. I want to address the sin of laziness this morning. A little background for you out of Proverbs. Let's just sort of set the table a little bit. Okay, what is a proverb? What is a proverb? Well, there's a definition for you. A proverb is a short, pithy saying, frequently using metaphorical language, which expresses a general truth concerning life. A short, pithy, the word pithy means cogent or concise statement that expresses the general truth concerning life. Because they are brief statements and they are designed to be memorable, they are not totally precise, nor are they universally applicable. That's an important thing to understand when you come to the book of Proverbs. These are truisms. These are generally true. These are observations that are generally true. They are not ironclad promises. And they are designed to be short because that's what makes them memorable. For example, the American proverb, look before you leap. 
Look before you leap. What makes that proverb memorable is the repetition of the single of the letter L in those single syllable words, right? Look and leap. That's what helps you to remember it. And it makes it much more memorable than a proverb that would go something like this. In advance of committing yourself to a course of action, consider your circumstances and options. Now, you would never be able to remember that. Okay? But that's essentially what that proverb is teaching. Look before you leap. Okay? The word proverb itself means to be like. The word proverb means to be like. So the book of Proverbs is a book of comparisons. It is a book of comparisons. It, it takes common, concrete images, life's most profound truths, and it marries them together. From that which is concrete and common and memorable, it expresses some kind of important truth. They are not just simple moral statements, or rather they are simple moral statements, or they are illustrations, and they highlight fundamental realities. Okay? That's the basic idea. The book of Proverbs is designed to, to exhort us. The book of Proverbs is designed to instruct us how to live godly, how to live skillfully in a world created by God. A world in which there are moral standards that are universal and fixed, having been established by the Creator Himself. Now, the setting of the book of Proverbs is primarily for the royal court with a secondary application into the home. The book of Proverbs, many of them, were written and collected for those, in particular, young men growing up with access to the halls of power. Those who had money, those who had opportunity, those who had position. We live in a world in which all of us have money, opportunity, and position, certainly in, in a comparison to the biblical world. So the Proverbs are very, very applicable to you and I today, and not just to young men, although that might be their, their first interpretation, but certainly by application, they are profitable for all of us. Now, God created this world, is that right? And God rules this world providentially, is that true? You bet. And God has baked into this world wisdom. He has baked it into the world. Let me show you this. Go with me to uh, Proverbs chapter 8. Let me show you what I mean. Proverbs chapter 8. Verse 22 Proverbs 8 and verse 22, and here wisdom is being personified. That is, it, it is being displayed as if it were, were alive with human characteristics. So it speaks, wisdom speaking here, verse 22, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth, and on and on it goes. And what this means is that that God created wisdom... Or, or rather, better said, God created the, the world and he, he baked into, he imposed upon the world an expression of himself, which is an expression of wisdom. 
And the reason that's important is because by looking around at the world, you can actually learn something about God and how he operates. God has has providentially created this world with certain natural laws, right? Like gravity. You know, you jump off the building and what happens? Down you go. Down you go, right? Now a fool could stand on the ledge and say, I don't believe in gravity because I don't believe in God. And so I can jump and, you know, I'll, I'll go up, I'll go down, I'll go sideways, whatever. But we all know what will happen. He goes down. God has also created the same world with certain fixed moral laws. And they cannot be violated with impunity any more than one can violate the natural laws of gravity. It is all baked into his creation. This is important because what it means is that even the unbelievers can stumble across and discover wisdom as it is baked into the creation. Even those who who would reject God, it is possible for them to, to discover a piece of the wisdom that God has woven into the fabric of creation. It also means that for the believer who possesses the Spirit of God, we can see and learn much from observing how God has put the world together. So wisdom can be observed or gleaned by observing nature. Just looking at nature, there are things that you can learn. Wisdom can be learned from observing human behavior. And furthermore, because wisdom has been baked into the creation... It can be passed down from generation to generation. It can become cumulative. It can become cumulative. Let me show you this in chapter 4. By God's providence, the wisdom, the laws of wisdom never change. What was wise a hundred years ago, remains wise today. What was foolish a hundred years ago remains foolish today. Each generation doesn't have to figure it out themselves. Each generation can learn from those who have gone before. Wisdom is cumulative. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. Give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound wisdom. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and only, and the only son on the side of my mother, then he taught me. This is Solomon writing to his sons. And he is saying, listen, sons, I want to teach you something. And what I want to teach you is what my father David taught me. Wisdom is cumulative. Wisdom is, can be passed down as a treasure from generation to generation. And that's really a blessing. Because if you had to learn everything yourself you would just begin to get wise about the time you die. And then what good would that be? But as a young members of the younger generation, you have a lot to glean from the older generations. That's one of the reasons why we are blessed as a fellowship here to have a multi-generational church body. Three and four generations here in this same church. There is tremendous opportunity in the mixing of the generations for wisdom to be transmitted from one generation to another. All right. We have said 
that when we work as God intends us to work, then we are glorifying him by displaying a part of what it means to be created in his image. You remember that? All right? Now, this way of thinking is not just merely helpful. This way of thinking is essential. In fact, this way of thinking is, is spiritual, truly spiritual. When we deny this way of thinking, when we deny it or, or forget it, that work is really a theological question, then we run the risk of becoming resentful toward our work, whiny about our work, shirking our responsibilities, unappreciative of the work that we have available to us, and lazy. In other words, we become what the Bible calls a sluggard. A sluggard. It's a great word. It's a vivid word. If you've seen a slug, then you know what a sluggard is. Right? So here's the questions. I'm to the questions. Now I've got three of them. My first question for us this morning to to really think about, and it pops out of Proverbs chapter 6, the discussions of the sluggard. And the question is simply this. What can a bug teach me? First question. What can a bug teach me? Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise. Stop right there. Now, wisdom is baked into the creation. Because it's baked into the creation, we can learn something from a bug. But the, the contrast here is really kind of, of a startling, isn't it? We have humanity, that's us. We are the very pinnacle of the creation of God. And we are commanded to go to a mindless, soulless, tiny little insect and learn something. God has created us to rule the creation someday. And yet, you and I need to go to school with a bug. We need to learn a lesson from the ant. And the lesson we need to learn from the ant is what does it mean to work? What does it mean to work? Someday, for those who are in Christ Jesus, you will rule the creation. For today, go to school with the bug. So what's the lesson? What does he want to teach us about a biblical work ethic? Verses 7 and 8. The ant has no chief, officer, or ruler. Prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. That's the lesson. It's the first lesson from the bug. Here it is. Ants display an innate and natural desire to work industrially. Industriously. Hard. Ants have a natural, innate desire to work hard. They don't need to be persuaded. They don't need to be browbeaten. They don't need to be forced. The ant has no coach. It has no supervisor. It has no accountability partner. It doesn't need a pep talk. It doesn't attend a Bible study. There's no motivational speakers. And there are no lessons on the biblical work ethic necessary. 
That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Ants work industri- industriously simply for this reason. God created them to work. God created them to work. And they work. And they work. That's the point. This is the whole point of it. In fact, ants are such good workers, check this out, when we are lazy and fail to do our work, they come along behind us and clean up. (laughs) They clean up. Ants work. Go to the bug and learn something. They do what they were created to do. Now there's a This is another lesson here, verses 9 and following. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Flipping the corner here, contrast to the positive example of the bug. The Proverbs now speak about the sluggard. Notice the words that are there characterized, sleep. Slumber, rest. These are what characterize the sluggard. Now, everybody needs to sleep. Human body, God has built us that way. We require sleep. But the sluggard doesn't get up when they're supposed to. They don't get up when they wake up. The sluggard pushes the snooze button on the alarm and rolls over. Eventually, the sluggard will wake up, but he stays in bed, daydreaming. It's his habit. It's his pattern of life. It defines him. It's a picture here of, of somebody, when they, they wake up, they don't get up. They just lie there, resting in bed, relaxing, while the day slips away, right? Just resting, hands on their chest. Right? That's the sluggard. What can the bug teach me? Simply this, refusal refusal to embrace a diligent work ethic is sinful because it violates the natural order for humanity. We were created to work. And when we fail to work, we are in sin. We are in sin. Second question for you. What does laziness look like? What does laziness look like? Well, for this, again, we can find much help in Proverbs. So I'll take you to chapter 22, verse 13. What does laziness look like? Number one, the sluggard or the lazy man. We'll just pick on men. The lazy man lies and makes excuses. The slugger says, 22.13, There is a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. Or, over to 26 and verse 13, The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. What the slugger says is, I can't go to work. It's dangerous. I might get hurt. Now, years ago, when I first entered into a management training program at, at, in a bank, uh, we had our first 
instructional lecture, and uh, one of the things the lecturer says that has stuck with me now for more than three decades is he said, if you want to statistically become more healthy, then you become a manager. Managers are more healthy than, than common workers. And everybody looked at him and thought, what, are you kidding me? He said, no, it's a statistical fact. Managers use less sick days than non-managers. Now, you've got to think about that, right? Managers always have accumulated, unused sick time. So what can we rightfully conclude? They must be healthier. No. No. The sluggard lies and makes excuses. The sluggard misrepresents reality in order to get out of work. Here are some common lies that sluggards tell themselves. Hey, I'm entitled to goof off once in a while because, uh, you know, after all, they're underpaying me. Or, or uh, they're overworking me. Or I, I deserve a promotion. Well, this company makes so much money. What they're really saying is, I am exceptional. And I'm special. And I'm not like everybody else. And because I am so wise and reasonable, I can see the big picture that the people and those who are in authority over me cannot see. And in my judgment, uh, the rules are not fair, and so therefore I'm going to adjust them. That's really what the sluggard is saying. Sluggards lie and make excuses. Sluggards take no initiative. Proverbs 26, verse 14 As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. I love these concrete images. As the door turns on its hinges, back and forth, so the sluggard turns on his bed, shoulder to shoulder, rolling back and forth. So there's certainly that, but I think there's goes beyond that. Here the picture of the door is, is the picture of something with a limited range of motion. Limited range of motion. And I think that's a great picture of a lazy man. They repeat the same unproductive activities day in and day out, just like a door opening and closing. They may work, but they, but they never press forward in their work to something better. They never seek to, to be challenged in their work. They're, they're satisfied with their limited range of motion, just back and forth, back and forth, just get by. We would talk about people like this as being underemployed. Underemployed. They take no initiative. No drive. No no sense to try to express the the image of God in them through hard work and creativity and productivity. They take no initiative. Third, sluggard doesn't finish things. Sluggards don't finish things. In the, in the rare instance when they actually do begin something, they don't finish what they begin. So Proverbs chapter 12, for example, and verse 27. I mean, it's such hard work, it, it wears them out. A lazy man doesn't roast his prey. Cook it, are you kidding me? That's way too much work. Way too much work. I wonder what frozen beef stew tastes like. Why would I bother to heat it up? 
I just think, eat it like a popsicle, right? It's the lazy man's approach. The precious possession of the man of a man is diligence. Hmm? Proverbs goes on. I mean, it, it uses examples here that are obviously humorous to drive home their point, right? So the lazy man's fields or a food grows cold. For example, chapter 19, verse 24. They're too, too lazy to even finish simple tasks. 1924, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. Chapter 26, verse 15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. I just get a picture of a, of a teenage boy with the refrigerator doors open and staring in. <laughs> Nothing to eat. A refrigerator full of food, nothing to eat. All right, why? Well, because you've got to do something. You've got to actually crack the egg and put it in a pan with some butter and some heat, and you can cook it. Too much work. Close the doors. All right, nothing to eat. The lazy man doesn't finish things. Just doesn't finish things. They'd rather do what they want to do than rather than what they need to do. Send the lazy man out to, to weed the garden, they'll clean the garage. They'll procrastinate about everything. They'll delay whatever is difficult or unpleasant. They won't finish tasks that they have begun. How do I know all this, by the way? Because I'm a lazy man. I'm a lazy man. And I fight with these things. The sluggard is proud. Chapter 26, verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. That, by the way, is the root of uh, laziness, is pride. It is pride. The lazy man considers himself smarter than everybody else. The seven men who can give an answer, seven is just a number of perfection. He's basically saying they're smarter than everybody. Or at least they consider themselves such. A sluggard is the know-it-all. You've met them. They know everything. They don't don't need to listen to any counsel of anybody else. They already know everything. So they don't pay any attention when people speak to them about getting out of bed, getting up, going to work. Ignore the admonitions from the scriptures to be diligent, to be thorough in their job, to to honor authority, to take on new challenges. Uh, Don't tell me that stuff. I don't need to hear that. I know it all. Lazy man regards other people as buffoons and fools. Parents who speak to them in this way. They're idiots. What do they know? My boss. Guy's a jerk. Can't believe he's so stupid and he's my boss. Teachers, other authority figures, the slugger just says, hey, I'm way smarter than all of them. I'm making eight bucks an hour, but I am way smarter than all of them. I was waiting for somebody to discover me. I got a lot of latent talent here, you know. Scripture says the sluggard will suffer. 
will suffer. Their life is characterized by making soft choices. Chapter 20, verse 4. The slugger does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. Made a habit of making the soft choices, the easy way out. So they won't do the work that's necessary, and so later they suffer for it. They're hungry. They're broke. Whatever. Their character suffers from this. They are restless and unsatisfied. Chapter 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Chapter 21, verse 25, same idea. 21, 25, the desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. They are restless, they are unsatisfied in life. They are helpless. Chapter 15, verse 19. The way of the lazy is as a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. The lazy man is hemmed in on all sides. He, he just uh, can't go forward, doesn't know where to go. His life's circumstances have overcome him because of his laziness. Lazy man is useless to anybody who would take a a flyer and seek to employ him. Chapter 18. Verse 9. He who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. He who is slack in his work, that is the, the man who is lazy in his work, is a, is, a, is a relative, a blood relative of the guy who's going to come in and trash your business. In fact, uh, Proverbs continue to say, chapter 10, verse 26. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. Nothing like a face full of smoke, right? It's a pleasant experience. It says, uh, you hire the lazy man, and this is what you can expect. You might as well gargle with vinegar, and you might as well, you know, let somebody just blow cigarette smoke in your face. It's going to irritate you. That's the big idea. It is going to irritate you. Because you want work done, and this person wants to do as little work as possible. You're on a collision course. Collision course. Third question. Third question. Okay, what am I going to do with this teaching? What am I going to do with this? Proverbs 24. Here's, here's the answer for you. Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 34. What are you going to do with this? If you're wise, you'll take it to heart. If you're wise, you'll take it to heart. Proverbs 24 and verse 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. 
And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Solomon says, hey, I was walking along the street. I came up to this house. The paint's peeling off the sides of the house. The lawn's all overgrown with weeds. There's a broken down car in the driveway. Right? The fence is all dilapidated. And I looked at it and I thought, huh, there's a lesson here. I know who lives in this house. A lazy man. A lazy man lives in this house. Beloved, if, uh, if you're sitting here and you have been thinking about, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this lesson. <laughs> then you've missed it. You've missed it. Right? Oh, man, if they'd have been here. Pastor would have really got them good that, you know, this week. You've missed it. It's speaking to us. It's speaking to us. The wise learn while there are still time. The wise learn while there is still time. The wise man knows that the, the sluggard is not some special case. Just an ordinary man, and I think, uh, I think the commentator uh, Derek Kidner says it well in his commentary on Proverbs. He says, the sluggard is just an ordinary man who has made too many excuses, too many refusals, too many postponements. It has all been as imperceptible and as pleasant as falling asleep. Laziness creeps onto us moment by moment, step by step. We don't sit down. No one sits down and says, all right, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Got it. I want to be a sluggard. It just kind of creeps over us as it begins to manifest itself over and over until it becomes a pattern and eventually it becomes a character. Parents, teach your children the value of hard work. Teach your children the value of hard work. Don't let them skate. It's harder to to show them and, and let them and then correct them in their work. It's far easier to do it yourself. But in the long run, you do them a disservice. And, you know, it's interesting as a parent, and, you know, I've raised four, and and, uh, I've got all my issues. It's easy as a parent to express your own laziness in doing the work rather than training your child to do the work. You know that? That seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? You would think, well, I'm a hardworking guy. I'll just do it myself. But in in that sort of an attitude, adopting that approach, you're actually being lazy yourself. It's harder to teach someone than it is to do it yourself. So we need to discipline ourselves in this. We teach our children to work hard. We will, we will set them up for a lifetime of honor. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29. Don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Teach your children to work hard, and they will go somewhere in life. I'll stand before kings. 
Now, there hasn't been enough conviction to go around, I think. So what do we do with it? Do we just sort of slither out the door and woe is me, I'm a lazy guy? Nope. We go to the gospel. We go to the gospel because laziness is a sin just like uh, any other sin. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that provides deliverance from sin. Amen? Not just eternally, but temporally in the here and now. He has broken the power of sin in our life. And so the way to combat laziness is not to make to-do lists. The way to combat laziness is to preach the gospel to yourself, to believe the truth of the gospel, which is you are delivered from the power of laziness. Now get up and act in faith and begin to do what you need to do. If you're having trouble getting out of bed in the morning, don't set ten alarm clocks. That's not the way to learn to get out of bed. Pray, rehearse the truths of the gospel in your mind, believe that you have been delivered from the power of this sin, that it no longer has a grip on you, and the only has a grip on you to the extent that you allow it to have a grip on you, and then set your alarm and get up. Get up. I can tell you this because, as I said, I'm a lazy man. I have struggled with laziness my entire life. And I continue to do so. By the grace of God, I've made some progress. But it's a constant fight. It is a constant fight. And I know that I'm not alone in it. Beloved, we'll never be entirely free of any sin. Not until the Lord comes and takes us home. And that's just one more reason to look forward to the coming kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for...